2: This is the Art of Charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life.
1: Today we're talking with Russ Roberts. He's an economist and a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. So he's a pretty sharp cat, and we're going to be talking about another sharp cat named Adam Smith. But we're not talking about The Wealth of Nations. We're talking about his other book that came before that. That was all about human behavior, virtue, and and uh, the way that people are, sort of a philosophical treatise on how we should treat each other, and it's really interesting. I had no idea this even existed. We're going to talk about his deepest insight, Adam Smith's deepest insight into human nature, what really makes us tick, the concepts of being loved and lovely, which are words that no one uses anymore, or at least lovely anyway, something called the impartial spectator, Smith's basis for our conscience, and the dangers of self deception, both at work and at home. So enjoy this one with Russ Roberts and through him, Adam Smith. And with that, welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, dead or alive at this point, teachers and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We may not have all the answers, but we certainly have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with The Art of Charm and get some great stuff that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up at theartofcharm.com. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like body language and nonverbal communication, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. And I'm doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. We've got our live programs running in LA. In fact, we've got guys from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you want to learn and grow. Get in touch with me directly is fine. Jordan at theartofcharm.com. I also want to encourage you to join our social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector. It's all about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444. Now onto the show. Here's Russ Roberts. I studied economics at the University of Michigan, but I mean, you know, undergrad, not quite getting all the way to 400 level, so I would put in a very heavy, bold set of air quotes that I studied economics, Uh, and I also blended it with another concentration so that I didn't have to do the, I
2: I don't know what it is with, are, are you a professor then of economics? I was for a long time. Now I'm a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. So you're familiar with the idea
1: that professors somehow, they don't want you to really just be interested in economics for the sake of it. They wanna put you through this super painful, what are they called, like filter courses where it's so hard and the professor's so strict and the TAs are so fascist that if you don't hate economics after that, then you get a PhD in the subject or whatever. That's a tragedy, actually. I don't get why they do that. I mean, I guess they kind of have to. It's a bummer because I loved econ. I thought it was super fascinating. And then there was one that was just like, if you can't do all this stuff on all these spreadsheets, then you're not going to cut it. And that was awful because, you know, then I hated it and dropped out and didn't take another. You couldn't go and take other econ classes until you had passed this one after a certain point. Um, and I figured it because you needed those skills, But people told me, no, not really. I mean, you kind of need some of the concepts, but you don't really do that stuff ever again. So they just want to scare people
2: away. Yeah, it's just what they're used. They've just dumbed down the graduate level and they make it as uninteresting as possible for reasons that are mysterious to me. Your work is interesting because most people who've studied econ in the West
1: have heard of Adam Smith. I guess you've probably heard of it if you studied it in the Soviet Union. It's just that... He was probably wrong, right? <laughs> probably,
2: uh, that's probably what you were taught.
1: <laughs> There's a lot of folks that are very familiar with the book, The Wealth of Nations, which how old is Adam Smith's book, Wealth of Nations? Are we talking like 17 something here?
2: Wealth of Nations was published in 1776, a very good year. And that was the book that made him famous. His first book, though, was The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which he published in 1759. And that's what my book is about. That's the forgotten Adam Smith book. It's funny because you'd
1: think Adam Smith is like this well-known, super famous, legendary, literally, legendary economist that kind of founded capitalism or or put it all on the paper. And then meanwhile, he had kind of a, I don't want to say a stinker, but something that just wasn't very popular before that,
2: you know? No, it was popular in its day. Oh, it was. It made him famous. It wasn't a loser book. It wasn't like a um, dog that got remaindered. It was a very respected book. It just didn't last much beyond his lifetime, except among scholars, and philosophers, and a few economists. So today, most people have never heard of it. And they certainly have never read it, other than a handful of, of, you know, academics. Right, such as you. Yeah. And you've studied this in
1: depth. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about it is it sounds kind of like... The precursor, precursor, precursor to how to win friends and influence people with
2: Dale Carnegie. Except he didn't write it that way. It's a book that has tremendous lessons for life, but he wrote it as a scholarly study of how people behave and the philosophy of morality and how we treat each other and how we respect or don't respect each other. And he was in competition essentially with other philosophers trying to explain those questions. So he wrote what's a pretty dry book. Or a kind of book you'd expect in 1759, but he's a great writer, so it's entertaining. Their language, but the sentences are long, and he's writing about some issues that are hard for us to relate to that we're not so aware of in terms of the philosophical issues. So, what I was trying to do is take his philosophical treatise and cull, harvest from it the lessons for life that are embedded in it, and there, there are many, and so it's a very rich book with lots of ideas, it's just not easy to get them in today's language. Sure. Right. I would imagine because personal development maybe wasn't super popular in the 1700s. Correct. As I joke in my book, the self-help section of the bookstore was kind of small. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It probably had the Bible. Yeah. Which is a great book, but that was probably about it. It wasn't a category in, in the 18th century. Right. So he
1: wrote this not as that. He wrote this as Here's a bunch of ideas I have about human
2: behavior. Here are my theories about, about morality and where virtue comes from and why are we nice even though we're basically self-interested. Why do we ever do anything generous for other people? Where does our conscience come from? Uh, things that uh, you know, a moral philosopher, which is what he called himself and thought of himself as, would try to explain. And in the course of doing so, he gave us a guide to what is the good life. So that's a
1: really interesting first question, though. Why is anybody actually anything but self-interested? Because one of the things that I've learned, I was an exchange student in the former East Germany, and then I've traveled through Eastern Europe, North Korea, things like that. I know a lot of people with a very socialist education, and one of their biggest criticisms is, especially if they've never been to the United States, is, well, the only thing people do over there, it's always some kind of self-interest because that's what capitalism is. Whereas socialism, communism is, you have to sort of enforce this education that you should be doing things for the greater good, which is obviously, I mean, we saw how that turns out.
2: It didn't work so well.
1: Right. It didn't work so well. Whenever you try to fight human nature, it's a losing battle. But why does anybody do anything that helps other people if we are, according to his book that he wrote right
2: after that, pretty much self-interested? So, you know, he would argue, and I would argue as well, that self-interested is not selfish, not the same word, right? Not the same concept. We are naturally self-interested. We we put ourselves first. We think of ourselves first. We inevitably are worried about our survival. It's hardwired into us. So it's not that we're selfish. That's that's a pretty brutal, bleak view of humanity. It's that we care inevitably more about ourselves than we do about other people. Doesn't mean we can't love. It doesn't mean we can't care. It doesn't mean we can't be kind to other people. But Smith went a little further than that. And he said, you know, actually, the truth is, is that our benevolence, our altruism and compassion is is pretty limited. It's not zero, but it it isn't big enough to explain the fact that we do very generous things and we don't always put ourselves first early on in the book, he gives this ridiculous and fascinating example. He said, suppose there's an earthquake in China that kills millions of people, and you're told about it, and you go, oh my gosh, that's horrible. And you go home, and you might talk about it with your family, or you might make a donation to a charity even. And then you sleep like a baby, because it's not in the front of your mind. Even today, certainly not in 1759 when they didn't have cable television, but even today, you can see a terrible tragedy on television. You can watch about it for days. But You kind of forget about it because you're mainly worried about your own life and your own troubles and your own problems. So it's not that you don't care about other people. It's not that you don't feel bad for people who are killed in a tragedy, but it doesn't weigh on you as your own tragedies do. And he gives sort of a reductio ad absurdum, a kind of ridiculous example to make this point. He says, instead of this earthquake, suppose you were told that you needed to have your little finger removed tomorrow in surgery for some medical condition. It's your little finger, you know, it's not your thumb, it's not your index finger. It's your little finger, and you're told you're going to have surgery. Well, you toss a turn all night. You'd be anxious about it. Right. So, which do you care more about, your little finger or millions of deaths in China?
1: Right. Yeah. You would care more about what you're going to look like drinking your fancy cup of tea without a little finger.
2: Right. And and your guitar playing is going to be handicapped and et cetera. It's, and just you're scared. It's just like, oh my gosh, what could go wrong? What's going to happen tomorrow? So, he takes that example, which I think is, is for better or for worse. I think he's right. I think most of us, could sleep pretty well after a tragedy, as long as it's far away and not to happen to our friends and neighbors or our family. But our own tragedies are very, very present in our mind. So he says, if that's true, that's a reality. That's the way we're built. Then why is it that if I gave you the chance to save the little finger and avoid the surgery, but to do so, you had to kill a few million people in China, would you do it? And Smith's answer is, well, of course you wouldn't. <laughs> right, no way, yeah. Right, it's horrifying. You wouldn't even consider, it was like, well, I it might be worth, no, it's disgusting. So he says, how is that? Your emotional reaction clearly shows that what you care more about is yourself than other people. But often, we don't put that into action. We often step aside. We let people get credit for things that they should get credit for. We don't claim all the credit for ourselves. We take time out of our schedule to go to a funeral, to console a friend. We make sure that our children get our time, even though we rather watch the football game. We help them with our, their homework. Not every minute. <laughs> We're still going to watch the football game sometimes. even when We should be with our kids, but a lot of times we do the right thing. Why do we ever do the right thing is what Smith wants to understand. And he suggests that the reason is that we care about how we are perceived by other people. Because we realize deep down that even though we are self-interested, we want to be around others. We want their approval. We want their respect. We want their love, their affection. That is the essence of being human. So we want and need to be around other people. We're not self-sufficient. We don't want to just be around, be with ourselves, either economically or socially. We need to interact with other people. And if we do, we want to interact with other people We better treat them decently or they're not going to respect us. They're not going to want to be around us. And so he argues that we act as if we have an impartial spectator, someone watching us who's judging us, who's not self-interested, doesn't share my interests, is impartial, not against me, but not in favor of me, the way I naturally look at my own self. And that person, that judgment weighs on me and keeps me from doing some of the things that I might otherwise do in my own self-interest. And that's my conscience. It's almost like he's he predicted Facebook, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, well, we could talk about Facebook and some of the the ways this runs amok, actually. But but Smithy, you know, has one sentence that really, to me, summarizes his view of human nature. He says, "Man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely." And by loved and lovely, he didn't mean the way we mean the words today, although partly that. But more than that, loved he meant respected, honored, admired. That people look up to us. That, they, that we matter. And lovely, meaning we do the right thing. We earn the respect. We earn the praise. We earn the honor. We're honorable. We're praiseworthy. And if you think about human nature, instead of thinking about it as selfish versus altruistic or kind versus cruel, what Smith's saying is we're complicated. We want the affection and respect and honor and praise of other people, but we want to earn it honestly. And to do that, we sometimes have to do stuff that goes against what is in our natural self-interest to do. And that's a very deep insight about how we interact with other people and how they interact with us. And I think he's 100% right. It's almost like the invisible hand
1: for the economy, only
2: for your own human behavior in some ways. Exactly. And it's it's the invisible hand that's working in our day-to-day one-on-one interactions, not just what we do in the marketplace, not just what we do in our careers or when we think about the whole macro economy, it's about every little but important interaction we have with our coworkers, with our colleagues, with our family, with our spouse, with our neighbors, our different communities that we might be members of. So, you want to be respected and honored and praised. And I don't want to make this sound like it's all ego. If you miss, if you exaggerate, it's like, yeah, all we care about is is a big, your ego is huge. You just want people to think a lot of you. Think about it in a more Pleasant way. Think about the fact that what really matters in our lives is the friendships we make. It's the people who care about us and we care about them. It's the bonds that we establish through these day to day interactions with the people we work with, that we play with, that we love, that we interact with, whether it's in business, whether it's in our social life, whether it's our hobbies, our religion. Those personal interactions, those are the essence of life. It's not how much money you make. It's not how many promotions you get. It's not how many cars you'd have, how fancy they are, how big your house is. Those things, says Smith, they don't give us real satisfaction. The source of real satisfaction are the human connections we make with others. and We only make those by restraining ourselves from our natural self-interest and remembering that we are small and the world is large, that we have to deal with other people. And it's not just about you. It's about all of us. And that is a very strange concept coming from somebody that people think of as the, the creator and, and, and the father of capitalism. But that's the way he saw the world.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It seems like a completely left field sentiment from somebody who's known as the father of capitalism. It's just, hey, now you don't want to have too many material. I mean,
2: it's like, what? Who are you? Adam Smith, it's like, I don't even know you. He says, now he explicitly says in this book, and if you if you look at the wealth of nations, he never contradicts this in the wealth of nations. In the wealth of nations, he's interested in understanding why some countries get rich and why some countries are poor, why some people get paid more than others. The standard things we talk about in economics all the time that he really created the field in through that book. He never says, "Hey, this stuff's great. We want to get really rich." He's Just trying to understand it. He's just looking at it. In this book, the book we're talking about, the Theory of Moral Sentiments, in his first book he's actually very critical of the desire to accumulate stuff, the desire for material success. He says, it's a trap. He says, we want to be loved. And one of the ways we want to be loved, one of the ways we can be loved is to be rich and famous or powerful. He says, if you're rich, famous, or powerful, he says people pay attention to you. He says, you walk into a room and you, you know the person I think of today is Donald Trump. Donald Trump walks into a room, all eyes go to him. They want to know what he has to say. They want to know what he has to what he's wearing, they want to know, even how he wears his hair. Strangely enough, he counts, he's important, and we have a natural urge to look at him for that reason. And Smith so says, "Don't pursue that path. That's the wrong way to be loved, because you'll do things along the way that will degrade you, they'll corrode your soul, they'll cause you to do things you're going to be ashamed of, they're not virtuous. said so if you want, to, the right way to be loved is to be wise and virtuous to be lovely. To do the right thing, to be kind to other people, even when it's not in your interest to do so, and even when you don't want to, and when you act honorably and keep your promises, you will be loved for the right reason. Says you won't be as famous. It says that path isn't as glittering. It's not as as obvious a path, and not as attractive as a path. He said, but it's the better path. Don't be fooled by money and power and fame. It says those are bad places to go. And it's fascinating to read in Smith's day about the cult of celebrity. You think, how, what kind of a cult of celebrity could they have in 1759? And the answer is, well, they did. It just wasn't like ours. They didn't have cable television. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have reality television. They didn't have People Magazine. But what they had was, they still had people striving for status. And they had the nobility. And Smith just hated that. He hated how people could be looked up to just because they had a title in his, you know, England, of his, in Scotland of his day. He had no respect for that. And so he said, the real way you earn respect is by being a good person, by cultivating your friends, by being a kind, good family member. That's what Smith says is the right way to be loved. How did
1: he come up with these ideas? I mean, obviously he's a pretty observant cat because it's not like he invented much of the concepts, especially in Wealth of Nations. He just put it all on paper
2: and systemized it, right? Well, he was, what'd you call him? An observant cat, I think it is- Yes. He was he was an extremely observant cat, and like a cat, I think you meant it in the uh in the hip uh way, I meant it in the jazzy way, but yes, right, but he was also a very curious cat, uh which is a very good phrase to think about. <laughs> he was very you know he had a very dull life on the surface, he never married most of his life, he lived with his mom, he cherished his friendships he was his best friend was David Hume, one of the great philosophers of all time. But he had a quiet life. He was a professor. He worked for uh, the government for a while. He traveled in Europe for a while because he was the tutor to the the son of the Duke of Bucco, a fancy uh, duke of his time. Speaking of celebrities with titles, right? Yeah, exactly. He was like, I think, the richest man, one of the richest men of his day. And his ancestor is one of the biggest landowners still in, in uh, the United Kingdom, interestingly enough. But my point is that Smith was did not lead a dramatic life. He, he wasn't a sailor and then a, an explorer and then a guy who ran six companies and created a new product. He was a scholar. He was a teacher. He cared about the world, but he looked at it from an armchair mostly. But he looked at it very, very wisely. He was very thoughtful. He was very observant. He could see things that other people couldn't see. And the reason his two books are so great is that he was... Well, it's two reasons. One is he could see things that other people couldn't see. But equally important, he wrote very beautifully. He wrote very clearly. If you go back and try to read his contemporaries, you put the book down after about 30 seconds. But Smith, even though his books are difficult to read cover to cover, because they're written a long time ago when he uses words that, and talks about things that aren't in our vocabulary so much anymore, any one page is full of charm and style. He was a great stylist, a great writer. A great communicator, so he used examples. He used stories. He had wit. He has irony. So that's why you know he's he's so uh, effective in in looking at and communicating to us today, even though it was written over 200 years ago. It's very insightful and says it well.
0: That's
3: K-A-J-A-B-I.com slash charm. Go to Kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify.
0: That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million order stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175
3: countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify.
0: Go to Shopify.com/charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com/charm.
1: Having looked at his work back and forth and over and over again, do you have any idea why/slash how he was able to be so insightful and observant? I mean, have you learned anything sort of meta from that research?
2: Not really. Not really. <laughs> okay. No, it's just an exceptional. You know, people come come along like this every once in a while. Uh, if you think about the people that you've learned from uh, the most in, in the modern world, you know, there's nothing you can point to. It's like, wow, he just really got into my into my bones. These insights, or he really saw things that other people don't see. That they're out there. It's not like he. Unc- it's not like he's you know finds gold that's that's hidden under the earth's surface. These are things that other people could have seen, but there's just some people just have an eye and a perception and a and a wisdom. He obviously was. You know, he was a, a voracious reader. He understood lots of complicated things about life in his time. But that's not enough. There were a lot of people who had those insights, who had that background. Why did his insights, why were they so interesting? Why were they so valuable? The answer is, you know, he was a one in a million. He was just a he's a rare bird.
1: So... How, wait, how old was he when he came up with all of this, when he started creating all these things?
2: So he was born in 1723. So his first book gets written when he's 36, comes out when he's 36. His second book comes out when he is 56, uh, 53, excuse me. Uh, you know, again, nothing dramatic. It was like he was a wonder kid who, who figured out something when he was 17 years old. He wasn't like, you know, Einstein or Newton, who, you know, was a genius from scratch. He clearly had a, a first rate mind, he was respected by other scholars of his day. I don't think people knew at the time that he would become the, you know, one of the most talked about intellectuals of the 18th century, that he would still be relevant today. You know, that Maggie Thatcher would carry the Wealth of Nations around, supposedly in her purse. The sign of her is, I don't know what she carried it around as, you know, it was pre-Kindle. It was her her (laughs) reading when she was in line at the grocery, I don't know, or whether it's just like a a talisman, or some kind of sacred object she liked to have with her to inspire her and I talk about this in the book. It's remarkable that this man who constantly talks about don't pursue wealth, don't pursue fame; those are are phantoms that, to be shunned in favor of wisdom, virtue, and yet he becomes world famous. Even in his lifetime, he was famous—not as famous as he is now, of course—but he was well known. He did very well economically. He wasn't rich, but he was, he lived very comfortably. But the key point is he didn't pursue those things for their own sake. That was his the key to his advice. He's not anti-money. He doesn't say to should live a life in poverty. He doesn't say that a monk is the highest level of human achievement because they give up things. He's saying, don't pursue them for their own sake. Don't be obsessed with them. And I think the biggest challenge in the modern world where there's so many opportunities for wealth accumulation and financial success uh, for so many people, and it's a glorious time for that reason, and we have a wonderful economic world despite the current economy, which is you know, not so exciting and not so great and very hard for certain people who are struggling. So I don't want to minimize any of that. But overall, in historical terms, this is a glorious time for most people to be alive in the Western world. It's unparalleled for how comfortable we are and, how, and the opportunities for accumulating wealth and financial success. And Smith says, just be careful. Don't overdo it. And he wrote this at a time when it wasn't so easy to, to gather money and people who wanted to really had to probably do many things that were corrupt. But it's just as true today that if you're not careful, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of fame, all those things can seduce us to do things we really shouldn't be doing. Yeah. And if you don't believe us, look at
1: the Kardashians or anybody (laughs) on reality TV, for that matter. Adam Smith talks a lot about the dangers of self-deception. You mentioned this in your work as well. How does that sort of parlay in here? Because we talk a lot about self-deception, both at work and at home on the show a lot, because it's, it's one of our... Our major enemies are the processes in our brain that say, well, I'm good enough right now as I am, or I don't need that, or I already know that, et cetera, et cetera. Any any sort of form of self-deception
2: can be really toxic. Yeah, and my particular interest is how our worldview, our whole perception of the economy or politics is the way that we look at evidence and data is often very imperfect. We just want to be comfortable. We don't want to be challenged. So we only listen to people who already agree with us. When we see a fact that disagrees with our view of the world, we just shunt, just push it aside and say, ah, that's probably wrong, or or you know, that study was badly done, and somehow the studies on your side, those are all the good ones. So I'm very interested in this question. And it comes up in Smith because Smith says, think about this. If the essence of humanity, if the, if what makes us tick, if what inspires us and drives us, is this desire to be loved. And at the same time, deep down, we want to earn that love honestly. We want to be lovely. We don't just want to get fool people into thinking that we're good people. We really actually want to be good people. We want to do the right thing. If that's true, Smith understood that one of the pitfalls of that worldview is that oftentimes we won't be lovely, but we'll convince ourselves that we really are. And we'll fool ourselves about our real nature. And we'll say, well, even though I'm I'm going to be fired as football coach, but I'm gonna I'm gonna resign before I'm fired and I'm gonna say it's because I want to spend more time with my family. So why do <laughs> yes. people say that? Or they'll say, you know, I they really want to take another job, but they resign temporarily. I mean football coaching I, I like because I use it in the book a couple of times because there's only 32 head coaching jobs in the National Football League if I have the number correct. I think there's 32. So that's it. You can't say, well, I'll, I'll be the 33rd. It's not as good as being in the top thirty. No, there are only 32 jobs. So the people who have those jobs work unbelievable hours. They work seven days a week. They work 12 plus hours a day. They're obsessed. And part of the reason they're obsessed is they love football. But the other reason they're obsessed is because they know if they don't work as hard as the other people, they're not going to keep their job. They're not going to be one of the 32. So they work incredibly hard. So when they have problems in their families, which happens all the time, and you read about it. I always you always hear the the sports announcer say, "Yeah, he's a great husband and dad." But you know something went wrong. I'm thinking, well, if he's a great husband and dad, maybe he should be a football coach, because you really can't give your kids or your or your spouse quality time when you're working a hundred hours a week. I mean, it just just isn't going to happen. You're fooling yourself. So in that world, you think about that world. Those folks when they say, "I'm quitting to spend more time with my family," you know, I always want to say, "Well, how long's that?" to last about a week before you take the next job? Because it turned out, oh, yeah, well, I did want to spend more time with my family for a few minutes. Then I realized I really also want to be a good football coach. So I, I'm going to jump back and take this other job. So those folks, I used to think, oh, they're fooling us. When they say they want to spend more time with their family, that's because they want us just to like them. They want to be loved. So they think that'll help me be more respectful of them. So they they couch it in those terms. And a lot of times they're also fooling themselves. They, they've convinced themselves that they really do want to spend more time with their family, you know. Or the or the famous, you know, example after some tragedy or horrible thing, somebody has to decide whether to play in the football game or not, or play the soccer game or play the basketball. Game. They say they always, you know, they always choose yes because they say so and so, the person who died, that's the way they would have wanted it. And I'm thinking maybe they wouldn't have, maybe they would have preferred that you mourn for them. And sometimes maybe that's true, but that's hard for us to accept. We want to do the thing. That gives us pleasure. So we often couch our self-interest in altruistic terms. And that's a deep insight into human nature. Smith talks about it. He, you know, he says, um he talks about how hard it is for us to judge ourselves. You know, it's easier for us to judge other people. This person's selfish, this person does the wrong thing. But me, I'm a saint, right? Yes. I mean, that's <laughs> it sounds like you're in my own head, Russ. Yeah, well, that's the way we all are. And and I think growing up. <laughs> Is accepting the reality that we're deeply flawed, that we're not as good as we think we are, and if we want to be better people, we want to be better friends and better husbands and better fathers, wives, daughters, you name it. We have to accept the fact that we have trouble looking at ourselves honestly, and yet we don't want to hear that from other people. We don't want to hear when we say to somebody, "So what'd you think of my uh, talk? Or how'd you think of, was I? Did I do a good job in that situation?" We usually want people to say, You are great. Yeah. (laughs) It's hard to accept criticism. Sometimes it's because it's not meant with good intentions, obviously, but also it's even hard when it's meant with the best of intentions. One of the things you learn from Smith is it's incredibly difficult for us to face the fact that there are flaws in our character. We really don't want to hear criticism. It's very hard to accept criticism from other people. And yet, if we don't listen to criticism from other people, It's going to be hard to improve because we're not very good at criticizing ourselves. And I think Smith points the way to that. He has this great quote. He says, he is a bold surgeon, they say, whose hand does not tremble when he performs an operation upon his own person. And he is often equally bold who does not hesitate to pull off the mysterious veil of self-delusion, which covers the deformities of his own conduct. We don't want to see our own weaknesses. But I love that line, bold is the surgeon whose hand does not tremble when he operates upon himself, right? I can operate upon you just fine. I'm relaxed, right? You know the joke, minor surgery, that's surgery that happens to somebody else. Yes. When it's you, it's never minor. It's all major surgery. So, you know, hey, I'm going to critique you. Give me an hour. I can make a long list. Critique myself. Well, it's really not that much. I'm really a pretty good guy. So that's our natural impulse at Smith. Reminds us of that challenge and gives us some hope for uh, finding our own ways to improve by being critical of ourselves and observing ourselves standing outside ourselves, you know this idea of the impartial spectator, if you imagine somebody standing outside you, not you, not partial like you are about your own self, you're very willing to justify and rationalize what you do, but an outsider going see your actions differently if you can use that method. You actually have a way to see yourself the way others see us. And Smith says, by the way, that's unbearable, literally. You know, the idea of standing in the shoes of others and looking at our own behavior. Yeah, it's awful. It's so uncomfortable. But he says, if you can do it to the extent you can, you can't really do it. But to the extent that you can a little bit, you can start to be better and more successful too, of course, not just about self-improvement in terms of morality. It's everything. We don't like to look at ourselves It's uncomfortable. And Smith's saying, you know, really, he's giving us the opportunity to think about taking a step in that direction and stepping outside ourselves and seeing ourselves as others see us. And if you do that exercise, it's very powerful. It's painful, but it's very powerful. Johnny,
0: we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire, you
3: need Indeed.
1: Now, back to the show. This is, it's actually kind of a universal truth, I think, with people. We At our live programs, we videotape our clients and it's widely known as the most painful thing ever because not only are you seeing yourself, supposedly as others see you,
2: you're seeing yourself as you think others see you. (laughs) Exactly. And that's even worse. Yep. Which means you tend to see your failings, your shortcomings. It's when we're forced to see ourselves as as others see us, we're forced to watch that tape. It's very uh, easy to see what we wish we were, we could do differently. And it's very hard to change those things, obviously.
1: So how does Smith advise us to use our conscience, our impartial spectator to also become more mindful? Or was that exactly what you meant by the previous exercise?
2: Well, it's related. It's not exactly the same. You know, again, to be honest, you know, Smith's not He's not into mindfulness because <laughs> right. mindfulness didn't exist as a term in 1759. Now, mindfulness is a is a fancy word for paying attention. And Smith was very into paying attention. He wanted you to and encouraged you to observe your own behavior. And I think to some, you asked me earlier, how was Smith so good at this? I think he was a very good observer of himself and those around him and noticed what they did that was uneasy, that was proud, that was vain, that was arrogant, that was humble. And he saw how people interacted with each other in those settings. And mindfulness is a, um, you know, it's a psychological, philosophical term that we use now really for just paying attention. And paying attention is strikingly difficult, right? The modern world, we're moving so fast. We have all these distractions. We've got our iPhone out all the time. We've got the TV going. We have the computer screen. And a lot of times we'd much rather pay attention to those things than to what is going on right now in this moment. So mindfulness, I think, is greatly underrated as a behavioral uh, action and as a way for us to to live. So I'm talking about it as a way to improve that when you watch yourself with all your flaws, interacting with other people, you step outside yourself and you see, oh, that was selfish, that was cruel, I, shouldn't have, I should have been more patient. I should have asked the other person more questions and not talk so much myself, right? That's one aspect of mindfulness. But the other aspect, and you know, this is not very Smithian, but it's the same technique, is to step outside yourself and realize, hey, look at the situation, look what's happening right now. Instead of stepping outside the situation, instead of being absorbed with some uh distraction, I'm gonna hone in and I'm gonna focus on this. And the mindfulness comes in and noticing, oh, yeah, I'm looking at my phone. I'm at my kid's basketball game, and I'm checking my email, and my kid just made a great shot. And he looked up in the stands, and I was looking at my phone. Yeah, (laughs) It's crazy. For me, the power of mindfulness isn't, to me, it's two things. It's I can be a better person. I can be a better friend. I can be a better colleague by being aware of when I'm putting myself forward too much and not making room for the other people around me. At the same time, I can savor life if I'm mindful, if I can notice what's going on and be in it in this moment. Instead of thinking, oh, I got to get that deadline. I got that deadline coming up. I got to write that paper. I got to write that memo. I got to write that email. Instead, I'm here. I'm with you right now. And let's savor this. This is life. It's short. It doesn't last that long. Enjoy every moment. And I think mindfulness helps you in paying attention helps you enjoy life in a very different way than if you just are a, what I think of as a cork, you know, a cork in the ocean and just bouncing over here, bouncing over there, not very focused, not noticing what's going on, just being swept along by the tide. And if you're not careful, a decade can go by. It's not just, you know, 30 seconds. Your life can just be swept along. You don't think about it. You're not paying attention and you find yourself down some path and that's the way your life goes. And mindfulness is a way to to really be in the journey all the time. When you tell people things like it's important to pay attention or don't let life just pass you by and get swept along and don't be distracted all the time by your devices like your cell phone. When you say that, people go, yeah, 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 I know, I know, no, no, no. And then they go back into their email because <laughs> that's their habit. And I think the challenge of mindfulness is to find practices and habits that can break the ones that you've developed for the first 30, 40, 50, whatever it is years of your life. And that's the challenge. Everybody knows it's a good idea. The challenge is figuring out a way to actually do something about it. And that's why it's worthwhile to read, say, The Theory of Moral Sentiments or whatever is your favorite book that focuses your head and gives you some ideas and gets into your bones because otherwise you'll just miss it. So, I think it's really important.
1: You can't overstate this. I mean, everybody I know that's successful that comes through on the program all the time, every entrepreneur that I know is, it's almost, it's a little trendy, but it also gets great results. The entire idea of being more mindful and the practice of cultivating mindfulness, which is why mindfulness exercises and meditation and things like that are so popular. Smith also, and in your work, we see that he also implores us to use the impartial spectator, and this concept of of loveliness, which is kind of a word that's not super in fashion, so I'll have you define it for us, can keep us from unethical behavior. Can you go through that a little bit? Man, I can't remember the last time I heard the word lovely.
2: So really, for Smith, there's two aspects of being lovely, and by lovely he meant, and by loveliness he meant being lovely, What for Smith, loveliness was, was being worthy of respect, honor, and praise. It's being, in Smith's day, a gentleman. It's a word that's out of fashion in our time, of course. That meant something to Smith, right? There were certain codes of behavior, certain expectations that he expected of his friends and that they expected of him that determined whether a person was lovely or not. And for Smith, there were two aspects to it. The first is a very old-fashioned word called propriety, uh, what we would call today proper behavior. And proper behavior in 2016 is really kind of out of fashion in and of itself, right? We kind of break the rules of Mm -hmm. proper behavior. We don't wear a hat when we go out. We don't, don't even wear a collared shirt sometimes. We don't. We live in a time when, for better for us, mostly for better, a lot of the rules of society are gone. And... That's okay, because a lot of them aren't so important. A lot of them are important. And those are things, I mean, some of them are cliches, like saying please and thank you, eating with your mouth closed, not talking all the time to your friends, letting them have a chance to talk. These are basic rules of social interaction. Please thank you, respect, kindness, etc. So for Smith, there were sort of two levels. There was the minimum level, and then there was the gold standard. The minimum level was propriety. The minimum level is you do the right thing. You do the thing that people expect of you, that is you alternate your merge to take a trivial example from daily life. You don't take somebody's seat when they get there first. You let them have the seat. You don't push them aside. These are all common things we don't even think about. They're all built into us now from years of of interacting with other people. Because if you break those rules all the time, people glare at you. They might punch you out even. You might get in a fist fight or get some road rage pointed at you. So we learned very quickly what the rules are of propriety. The rules of propriety are are kind of obvious, even though they change over time. Like I said, you know, it used to be that if you went to the World Series, you wore a man wore a hat, a real hat, not a baseball hat, not a baseball cap, but a, a fancy a fedora. Go look at the old pictures of the twenties of, of World Series games; that every man in the stand is wearing a hat, and it's usually in a jacket and tie. And we look at that and say, that's crazy, because that isn't proper behavior in 2016. Proper behavior in 2016 is you dress whatever way you're comfortable. And if you wear a jacket and tie and a hat, you kind of look like a fool. That's very rare in today's world. So the standard of what's proper varies over time. It evolves. It changes. But at any one time, we kind of know what the right thing to do is in terms of courtesy, etiquette, et cetera. Again, we live in a more informal time. Your waiter introduces yourself with his or her first name. Those are things that would be unimaginable in Smith's day. But they're still rules. They're just different rules. And those are the basics. Those are what Smith says sort of the minimum standard for loveliness, but they're not the gold standard. The gold standard is to go beyond that and to be virtuous. And you know, when Smith talks about virtue, it's basically, it's basically three, three big things. It's take care of yourself, be prudent. He calls it prudence don't hurt yourself. Don't get overweight. He doesn't use these terms, but this is the modern version of prudence. You know, Don't eat too much. Don't smoke. Take care of the gift that you have of your body. Don't gamble your money away. Don't invest in high-flying stocks that are unlikely to succeed. So be prudent, prudent with your health, prudent with your money. This is because you're of no use to anyone else if you
1: can't even take care of yourself, I would imagine.
2: I don't, I'm not sure exactly what the reason is, but it's, um, it's almost self-evident that you should take care of yourself. Then he says, "Don't hurt other people." Tells us justice. Don't steal from them. Don't hit them. <laughs> don't bash their car. Don't be rude. These are all also pretty basic. We know what those things are. The next level is a little bit harder. The next level is be kind to other people, and that's a lot trickier because it's not always obvious that what we want to do to help other people actually helps them. He says the rules of of benevolence are are loose, vague, and indeterminate. We don't always know what's the best thing to help somebody. And so, but those are the big three. Don't hurt other people, don't hurt yourself, and be kind to other people when you can be. Those are the three areas where those are hard, right? We want to sometimes invest in the riskier thing. Sometimes we do put ourselves first and we end up hurting other people. Sometimes we want to help other people and we still hurt them because we do something for them that we thought was good that ends up not being so good. And so if we can achieve those goals, though, we can be just prudent and benevolent uh, as actually beneficent, then we will be virtuous and then we'll really earn the respect of the people around around us. So when you think about what your friends think of you, again, we talked earlier about how hard it is sometimes to see ourselves as others see us. If you imagine how our friends talk about us when we're not around, they say, what do you think of so-and-so? And you you could overhear those conversations, you know, what do you want that to what do you want those to be? Oh, he's a great drinker. Gosh, he could chuck a beer faster. Is that really the important thing, right?
1: Right. That's not what you want. Yeah. That's an
2: interesting thought exercise. Right. The extreme version of it is think about your funeral. Boy, he had a nice car. That's not what they say at your funeral. Right. They say he was a great father. You hope. He was a great husband. He was he was loving. He was kind was thoughtful. He always went out of his way to do the right thing. He always went out of his way to be helpful. He would give up time if he knew I needed him. Those are the things we want people to say at our funeral, not, boy, was he a fantastic report writer when we got a deadline. So that exercise is an exercise in mindfulness. But I think, you know, coming back to Smith, Smith's saying, we really want to think about how our friends perceive us and if we want them to perceive us as lovely, coming back to our loveliness point, we want them to see us as virtuous, not just as successful, not just how clever we were or how skilled we were at our job. Those are nice things, right? Because a job can be a wonderful thing to make the world a better place, right? I don't want to understate, and we often forget how important work can be in helping other people. But when we think about the sacrifices we make, when we think about the virtues that we have, Skill at work is one of them. There's nothing wrong with that. But the other virtues are the ones that Smith was talking about, which were prudence, justice, and beneficence. Interesting at the time that
1: all of this was not necessarily revolutionary because there are, you know, Old Testament, New Testament type things that that had to do with this. But he started to observe these, these traits in people who are actually very successful, I would imagine. Is that accurate? Did he observe this in people that were happy, successful in his estimation and, and reverse engineer it?
2: That's a good question. You know, he, he didn't get out much. <laughs> you know, a lot of his life was spent in hanging out with very talented people. And I think he respected some of them, maybe most of them, right, that he chose to hang out with. And I think he observed why it was, as you said, that why did he like them? What did he respect about them? What was special about them? It's just an amazing thing. It's just, it's wild. By the way, I don't think he's particularly interested in happiness, uh, the way we are or the way we talk about happiness. He was very interested in I would say the right word would be serenity. He was interested in what it takes for people to achieve deep satisfaction, not momentary pleasure or happiness. You know, I just I've got a copy of my book here. I'm leafing through it and I find this example when um When Smith's best friend David Hume, the philosopher, passed away, he wrote a letter about Hume, and the respect that he had for Hume as a human being, as a friend, and for Hume's character, for Hume's ability to put money in perspective, for his kindness, for his wit that wasn't cruel—that's what shines through. And I think, for whatever reason, you know, whether it was the way he was raised, whether it was because of this impartial spectator idea but he looked at people in a very rich thoughtful way about what we really care about in the people around us and um we have a lot to learn from him so having studied this so much so in depth for so
1: long you've you've almost had almost like a personal encounter with adam smith at this point
2: yeah in fact i feel like when you write a book like this you're hanging out with the guy <laughs> In, 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 a, in a real sense. Um, but I actually had almost a, a real encounter with Smith when I went to England to lecture about Smith when the book came out uh, about a year ago. So I was invited by the Royal Society of Arts, which is a, it's a club. It's a society. It's a lecture series. They do other things as well. So I came to give a lecture on Smith. And when I got there uh, in London and was went to the Royal Society the person who greeted me said, this is so exciting because Adam Smith was actually a member of the Royal Society of Arts. So that's just sort of cool. So that's neat. Oh, that's great. So before my talk, I went into what's called the green room where they just you hang out before the talk. And, you know, it's they put out some cookies and some drinks. It was pleasant, but a very nondescript room. The building itself was very beautiful in parts because it was old. I was in a modern part. It wasn't anything special. But in the corner, Nothing else interesting in the room besides the the drinks and the food, but except this, in the corner was this enormous green armchair, and it said it was a gift uh, for the president of the Royal Society of Arts. It must have been like the chairman's chair uh, at the time. It was designed by a famous architect and furniture maker, and it said it was delivered to the Royal Society in 1759, and that was the same year I realized that Smith's theory of Moral Sentiments has been, had been published. So it crossed my mind that Smith may have actually sat in that chair. Maybe when the president wasn't around or maybe just used it occasionally, there was an armchair. I could put my posterior in this chair of posterity, <laughs> this, this chair that was a couple hundred years old. It was so exciting. Now, why was that exciting? It, in a way, I mean, who cares, really? It's kind of silly. But I tell a story in my book, which is almost the same story. It was kind of weird. It was like uh, life imitating art. In the section of my book on celebrity, because Smith talks about celebrity, I told a story that I had read about Ted Williams, where Ted Williams had a uh, Cadillac, that a cream-colored Cadillac that he used to drive around town. And he had a friend who usually was his driver, just a normal guy. And Ted Williams liked him because he, I think he treated him like a normal person. And one time Ted was out of town and his driver, Jimmy, said, Ted, is it okay if I take your car? I've got a date. So he takes the car and Ted says, sure. And he takes the car, he takes his date out to dinner. And as he pulls into the restaurant, a cop pulls him over and says, Hey, what are you doing driving Ted Williams' car? Because evidently people knew it was Ted Williams' car. The police did. And Jimmy said, Oh, I'm out on a date. Ted's out of town. He somehow convinced the officer that it was okay that he had Ted Williams' car. So he goes into dinner. Before he goes into dinner, the cop says, hey, wait a second. He says, would it be okay if, we'll, if I sat in the car for, for a minute? And the guy says, oh, sure. So he leaves the cop sitting in the car and the, goes into dinner. Comes out after dinner. There's six cops sitting in Ted Williams' car. The guy was so excited to be sitting in Ted Williams' car. He called his friends to come sit in the car, which is weird. Yeah, that is weird. Ted Williams isn't there. I mean, what's the excitement? But there's something iconic and fun about this object that this other famous person had. So I tell the story because it's such a great example of how obsessed we can be with famous people. But here I was in London with the same kind of moment. But there was one problem. So I could sit in Adam Smith's chair except for one problem, which is there was a sign that says, don't sit in the chair because it was built, you know, 1759. And if everybody sits in the chair, it's going to disappear. So that was the problem. The good news is there was nobody in the room. So the question is, there's no spectator, impartial, partial, just the imaginary one that Smith talks about over my shoulder. So the question is, did I sit in the chair? Did I not sit in the chair? What do you think? Well, I guess I I should
1: let you cap that off because I'm not, not, I hope you did.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So the answer is I didn't sit in the chair because it would be wrong. It would be unlovely. It would be a terrible thing to sit in the chair. It's selfish. It's not the right thing to do. But even if I did sit in the chair, I wouldn't tell you because I want you to think I'm lovely. So it's a, it, to me, it was an example. It's this very Smithian moment where I was forced to think about Smith in so many different ways when uh, confronted with that simple green chair. Thank you so much.
1: This has been great. I appreciate your time. And uh, of course, you know, anything we can do and we'll link to your podcast and your work in the show notes. Interesting stuff. Jason, I had no idea Adam Smith had another book. Most people probably don't. And it was his first book. It's called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. It's weird that it was his first book. Like, you would think, oh, that got popular because his first thing was such a rousing hit. I guess they were both pretty popular. But we only, we don't learn about this stuff in school. So no matter how popular it was, we're only going to learn about the economics aspect of it. And it's fascinating to me that we have almost the invisible hand only for our behavior, not just for economic markets and that those concepts kind of cross over and come into play there as well. So I hope everybody enjoyed that. And of course, if you did, don't forget to thank Russ on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes, as well as his podcast and the book mentioned on the show. You can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the show notes right on your phone. I'm also on Twitter at The Art of Charm. It's a great place to engage with me there. I'm pretty quick. I share a lot of insights, a lot of articles. And frankly, Mostly funny stuff, so if you like my sense of humor, you'll love the Twitters. Bootcamp details, com. Get in touch, get some info, plan ahead. Review us in iTunes, subscribe, and tell your friends. When you write a review, this is what helps us keep up in the ranks so that people can find the credible advice they need. Special thanks to both the Jasons and Fogarty for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now, have a great week. Leave everything and everyone better than you found them.
2: Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.